Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. There are a lot of great books about presidential campaigns. Teddy White's famous four-book series from 1960 to 1972, and Richard Ben Kramer's singular account of the 1988 campaign are still touchstones for many political reporters today. The Bill Clinton and George W. Bush errors produced fewer big hits, but the genre roared back in the Obama and Trump years. There are too many great ones about 2016 and 2020 to even mention. But since 2012, the one post-election book that I look forward to reading every cycle is not by my colleagues in the political press corps, sorry, it's by two academics in political science departments, Lynn Vavrick of UCLA and John Sides of Vanderbilt University are about to publish their latest book in their presidential campaign series, The Bitter End, a political science interpretation of the 2020 presidential campaign, which is out on September 20th. They're joined this time by a third co-author, Chris Tosanovich. This is the book you want to read if you want to understand what they describe as both the long-term trends and the short-term shocks that shaped 2020 and continue to reverberate today. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Everyone thinks it's polarization. It is not polarization. I think of it as sort of polarization plus. It's more than that. You won't necessarily learn much about the plot to oust Jared Kushner as Trump's campaign strategist or what the hell Biden was doing in the basement all those months. But you will understand what's driving both the increasing distance between the parties and the increasing homogeneity within the parties. People look out and they see the two parties and the worlds that they're proposing. And they say, yeah, the world I want to live in is looking a lot closer to this party than that one. Why so-called identity-inflected issues are the great new dimension of political conflict in America. And why something as simple as partisan parity in the electorate has enormous consequences for things that seem unrelated, like the Republican obsession with altering the rules of our elections. Many of these shifts have been turbocharged by Donald Trump, but you'll also learn why it's not all his fault. He's not creating these attitudes. You can think of them as sort of being embers that were just a part of public opinion. But what he is doing is throwing gasoline on the embers. I know, I'm putting to work. It's good to see you. Welcome. I visited Lynn Vavrick at her office at UCLA, <laughs> and we discussed all of this and also why none of it is likely to change anytime soon. So calcification is exactly what you think. When you think of the human body and bones calcifying, they get a little stiff, makes it hard to shift. And calcification does to the body politic the same thing it does to the human body. So we, by calcification, we're talking about a period of stickiness, rigidity. And we want to tell people what that means. There's the tectonic long-term shifts. That's the polarization that people are very familiar with. So 
thing number one is increasing distance between the parties ideologically. So we've seen this in Congress for a long time. Everybody knows there used to be liberal um, Republicans and conservative Democrats. And then over time, since the 1960s, those conservative Democrats have moved out. They've become Republicans. And there aren't liberal Republicans anymore. So there's a whole space in the middle between Democrats and Republicans in Congress. But in the mass electorate, that hasn't happened at the same pace. But we see it now. So So it happens faster among elites, activists, and elected officials. Yes. And then the public, which has slightly more mixed political views, catches up. Yes. I mean, it seems like that. Definitely, it's been slower in the public. Um, And there are lots of reasons for that. One is the the shifting of the South. Um, But also, in the last 20 years, Democrats have become very liberal on uh, issues related to equality and identity. And so the gaps are getting bigger and bigger. And now there's very little overlap. There are hardly any liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats in the mass electorate. Right. Okay. I think um, by the time Obama came along, who was all about bringing the two sides together, ironically, that Congress in 2009, the most um, liberal Republican was to the right of the most conservative Democrats for the first time in congressional history, or maybe since the 18th century. Yeah, the timing sounds right to me. So the two parties were pulled apart. Yes. Ten years ago, when we talked about polarization, a lot of the conversation was about asymmetric polarization, how Republicans have moved further to the right than Democrats have moved to the left. Is that still the case, or has the de- have the Democrats caught up? Well, it, it depends a little bit on which issues you're talking about. Um, but on all of the issues that have been focal in 2016 and 2020, the big moves have come from the left. Hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll skip now to the second component of calcification, yeah, just because can... it's related. Yeah. Is So the first one was increasing distance between the parties. The second component is increasing homogeneity within the parties. So Democrats are more alike, more like one another, and Republicans are more like one another than they have been historically. And this is on these issues that have been focal in 2016 and 2020, identity-inflected issues. The Democratic Party on average has moved to the left because the people calling themselves Democrats are becoming liberal. Like some of them maybe weren't, but now that these issues are percolating up to the top, it's what everybody's talking about and thinking about, they're becoming priorities. The people calling themselves Democrats realize like, oh yes, I actually do think that, you know, we should have equality on this or that, or there shouldn't be a wall on the border. And so that has shifted the average position of Democrats in the mass electorate to the left, to the left, to the left. So both moving further to the left and becoming more homogenous ideologically. Yes. Um, both of those things are happening. And that's the, the big story in the last decade on the Democratic side. Yes. And it, it happened earlier on the Republican side? Well, or- you know, in my mind, I think of this as like, well, who's moving farther is it's not really a produ- not, it's not a productive way to think about it just it. because like in some cases um you know you're up against whether you want to call it a floor or a ceiling effect but like you know most republicans knew how they felt about 
whatever issue it is we're talking about. And so they... So it's more the Democrats are discovering? um, It could be that people who have been calling themselves Democrats for a long time... Let me actually, can I, to, yeah. to sort of illustrate this, I'll go to now the third component of yeah. calcification, yeah. which is one of these short, shorter term, more near term things that has happened. The separating of the parties and the homogenization has been decades in the making. Okay. But what makes that, what's causing those are the that, tectonic those are the tectonic shifts. Okay. What's causing that is now this third, more near term shock, which is the rise of these identity-inflected issues. And this is important to understanding those first two things because, you know, for decades and certainly most of our lives, politics has been fought over the New Deal dimension of conflict. The size and role of government, what's the appropriate role of government, how high should the tax rate be? What has happened starting roughly 2008, 2012, and then really, really in 2016, is the transformation of what we're fighting over. And so we're not fighting over the New Deal anymore. We're fighting over these identity-inflected issues. And politics feels more divisive in this conflict because these issues are about fundamental questions like who gets to come to America, who gets to call themselves part of the country, bans on religion, walls on the border. So these kinds of issues are about people and fundamental ideas of identity. And so as those issues become the things that we're fighting over and the New Deal issues fade away, some people who had been calling themselves Democrats in the electorate Maybe they never really thought about what their position would be on a religion ban or a wall on the border. But now this is what we're fighting over. So they have to figure it out. And it's not so much that um, they are changing their mind. Maybe they never really had a position. They call themselves Democrats. They look around. The other party's really far away now. So, you know, I, I'm going to take the Democrat position on this. Or they genuinely have that belief, right? There are lots of ways that it can be happening, but the catalyst for it is the rise of a new set of issues that now we're fighting over. And that's thing number three. That's the third element of calcification. How much of that process is driven by negative partisanship? In other words, if I'm a Democrat who's not really thought about immigration too much, but suddenly Donald Trump comes along and I really hate him and my party hates him and all he talks about is building the wall and cracking down on immigration and suddenly I react, I just take the exact opposite view. So suddenly I'm a, you know, I've never thought about immigration, but suddenly what's formed my view of it is a reaction to the leader of the party I hate. I think that um, negative partisanship or affective partisanship, these emotional reactions to a party are real and they are exactly as you describe them and they are getting, there's more emotion and more vitriol over time. And so that is all true. And I think it's a part of the story, but I don't think it's the only part. So I don't think that people just hate the other side. And so then adopt all the policy positions of their side. My view is a little bit more that people have an idea of what kind of world they want to live in. 
they look out and they see the two parties and the worlds that they're proposing. And they say, yeah, the world I want to live in is looking a lot closer to this party than that one. It's not perfect. But one of the things that makes this easier for people is that increasing homogeneity within the parties now. And, you know, there are times in American history, you know, during our lifetime when that wasn't true. Mm -hmm. um, but but it is now. And so it's it's it isn't that all of these positions are correlated within the party makes it seem like if someone has never thought about an issue and all of a sudden adopts the position of the party that they're not thinking about it. Right. But they could be thinking about it, you know, because they're a liberal person in general and now they're taking the liberal position on this issue they'd never thought about. It's very hard to disentangle this. Is this a good place to talk a little bit about the Nationscape survey that really helps put a lot of meat on the bone of what you're <laughs> describing in terms of how identity politics have become much more important than the size and role of, of government in the older era? Yes. So tell us a little bit about that survey, which... Nationscape is the project that um, provides all, almost all the data for the bitter end, not all of it, um, but a large part of it. And it was um, the crazy idea of my colleague, Chris Tosanovich, who is a co-author on The Bitter End. And with the help of the Democracy Fund, who funded this project, and the Klarman uh, Family Foundation, also a funder, and Lucid, uh, who provided sample for our survey, we interviewed roughly 6,250 people a week, every week between July of 2019 and the end of January 2021. So through wow. the Capitol insurrection for a total of roughly 500,000 interviews. Wow. And um, what we thought we were doing is fielding a very large survey every week in the hopes of measuring change in something that would happen. We literally said to one another at one point, maybe something really interesting will happen <laughs> and we'll get to measure change. And we thought the big risk was going to be that nothing interesting was going to happen in the 2020 campaign, that it was going to be a basic repeat of 2016 yeah. and it was dialed in and that we would have spent all this money and time and effort and not, there would be no nudges there'd be no you know pokes um to get people to react to right so the the surveys would just got to be static exactly nobody would change their views exactly no game changing moments no game <laughs> potential game changing moments we we thought that was the risk um but we we felt pretty confident that something would happen and i mean so much happened and the data are so flat so in in many ways, this is, the, this is one of the you know this is the thing that I think is hard to wrap your head around when reading the your analysis of this. The big things that happen that we all think, oh my God, this is going to change the outcome of the election, whether it's the mass protests after George Floyd's death right. or COVID, COVID. <laughs> so stuff happened. Yes. Yeah. It. This is an example of how powerful calcification is because there were huge things that happened even in 2019. And one of the unique things that we do in Nationscape, and again, this was Chris's idea, was 
um, something called a conjoint experiment where we marketers do this all the time. Um, I want to sell you a box of cereal. Are you more likely to buy it if I put a, you know, a red box, a blue box or a green box? Or if I call it Wheaties or Cheerios, you know, so they show you different examples and you pick the one that you would buy. And so we are sort of going to borrow that methodology and we're going to offer people two different states of the world, um, baskets of policy positions. And we're just going to say to people, think about the kind of world you want to live in. Would you rather live in world A or world B? Neither one of them is going to be perfect, but which would you choose? And, you know, world A might be there's a wall on the border and abortion is always legal, right? And world B is the opposite of that. And so nobody is going to think either one of those two baskets is perfect for them, but they've got to choose. And so if they choose the world with the wall on the border, we know that's more important to them than their position on abortion. If they choose the abortion position that matches their position, we know we've previously asked them what they prefer. So we're forcing people to make trade-offs. And that method, that conjoint experiment, is how we can tell what are the most important policies to people. And that's a little bit of how we can see these identity-inflected issues really percolating to the top. And things like the tax rate, um, you know, taxes on the rich or middle income falling down in terms of people's priorities. They don't care about that in their world anymore. They care about identity-inflected things. I found this this part of the this experiment really interesting. And this is the term you use is the revealed importance yes. of selected selling issues. So by yes. giving people enough of these baskets of, of choices, yeah. you figure out which one is the one that like really moves them and they really, really care about. Yeah. If if I'm always asking you, everybody plays this little game ten times in the survey. So you're gonna answer this question ten times. You're gonna choose between two things, A and B. Yep. And if if I always have an issue in there, a policy in there about the environment, and you are always picking the basket of goods that reflects your preferred position on the environment, no matter what else is in the basket, at the end of your 10 times, I understand the environment is the highest important issue to Ryan. And so that's what we're doing uh, for everybody, for all 500,000 people. And so this 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 revealed importance and the way that you do do it, it sounds like it's much more effective than if you just read people a list of issues and say what's the most important to you. There's just other things going on yeah. when you ask someone that way. Yeah. So one thing is survey researchers have long demonstrated social desirability bias. So you ask people what's the most important issue to you, right. and it's one thing if you don't give them a list, but if you do give them a list, people know what society thinks is important right Right. and so to use an internet term your virtue signaling your virtue signaling yes and and so a little bit of that now not i'm not saying that those answers are useless they're not but a little bit could be that a little bit could be you know i don't really know what's most important to me but it seems like it might be this so i'll say that or what's great about the conjoint experiment is people are behaviorally revealing what's important to them. They don't even know they're doing it. And so in a lot of ways, we're just observing their behavior instead of relying on them to understand what the most important thing is to them and, you know, tell us. And I have the the chart up on on my screen here, and it's kind of mind-blowing. The top, top issue, the revealed importance, is impeach Donald Trump, 
beats everything. Deport all undocumented immigrants is number two. Build the wall on the southern U.S. border, number three. Create path to citizenship for dreamers. So immigration is just blowing everything out of the waters. Separate children from undocumented parents. Create path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. Um, and then at the bottom, the very lowest one is limit trade with other countries. And then as you were just discussing, then, then tax issues are also at the bottom. Raise taxes, cut taxes. And then in the middle is kind of like a lot of meat and potatoes issues. Yeah. Uh, about Medicare and, 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 and health care. So unpack that for us. Yeah. The first thing I want, I want to make sure that everybody understands is that the way to think about that is not that impeaching Trump was the most important thing to people on average. It's whether to impeach him. So some people want to impeach him and some people don't. Right. That's what I was yes. so It's both sides. It's here. both sides. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. I didn't want people to think that like deporting it, like is the second most important thing. It's whether to deport. Right. So yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So all of these. Yes. You're, you're combining left and right. In this in this figure. In this figure. Yes. To figure out the, the issues that are the most important. Yes. And so right. the point here is that thinking about immigration, abortion is also high up there. Yeah. And um, whether it's about race, ethnicity, religion, gender, those issues are at the top. And Trump is focal. You know, one of the ways Chris and John and I would struggle a little bit whenever we're thinking about figures like this, and there are a lot of them in the book, because, um, you know, I was always tending to say, these issues are more important than ever like then before now. And they would say, wait, 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 Lynn, we don't have a time machine. Like right. we can't go back to 1980 and run this conjoint experiment. Like maybe these things would have been at the top in 1980. And of course that is the smart scientific answer. But one of the things that, you know, I would always sort of come back to the home base of like separating children at the border and building a wall on the border, you know, those are Trump centric issues. Right. So like yeah. there's some sense in which these are more contemporary, more Trump centric issues and they're at the top. Um not abortion, that's obviously a long-term uh right. issue that is, you know, has now taken on a new level of importance, but yeah, it's um it's pretty remarkable. And later in the book we break it out by party to show that it's the same for Democrats and Republicans, like everybody thinks these identity things are at the top. Well, the way that the two parties used to be described as recently as like a decade ago was the Democratic Party is more of a coalition party with a lot of internal ideological disagreements, whereas the Republican Party has for a longer time been more ideologically homogenous, also racially and ethnically uh, homogenous, religiously more homogenous. How much is what you're describing that's happened on the Democratic side changed that historical view of the two parties? I think both parties now have a lot going on um, in terms of, you know, I mentioned a minute ago that there's more homogeneity, yeah. but this is, this is weird, right? Like there's more homogeneity within the parties, but yet the, the, the ideological separation within the parties seems important, right? There's progressives and there's moderates in the Democratic Party. And then there's you're you not know. saying that that's all been papered over and that's all, you know, no. those internal debates are No, are but over. here's the yeah. thing, right? And this is back to this idea of calcification is that even if you are as far left as you can imagine and you're a Democrat and your party nominates a moderate Democrat, hypothetically, let's say, um, you know, the Republicans are so far away from you in terms of what the kind of world they want to deliver that... Your positions on issues 
even though you describe yourself ideologically differently within the party, your positions on issues tend to be more similar than they have been over time within the party. So, you know, Democrats are not taking positions Republicans are taking, right. Right? even if they're right. moderate Democrats. Right. It's still a contained universe yes. ideologically. Yes. And if you are taking a Republican position, you're just not even in the you're probably a Republican. You're, Republican or you're, not, you're <laughs> certainly not going to do very well in the primary of either party. Like that just, it's not that ideologically diverse anymore. It's, it is, this is a very interesting conversation because I think you're right. Like, I hadn't thought about it this way, but when there were liberal Republicans yeah. um, who might vote with a Democrat or for a Democrat sometimes because maybe the issue that was important was the one on which they were liberal that might have meant that there was a lot of ideological span in the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, but even, okay, so those people are gone. They're Republicans now. Or they've become Democrats, let's say. But the ideological diversity now within the party, even though it seems very important, the progressives, moderates, like, yeah. boy, how are they ever going to, but they do agree on tons of stuff. That's the point. So what does that mean, or what did that mean since this is, it's, you go into the the, the primaries of of uh, twenty twenty or the Democratic primary, what did that mean for Joe Biden in this ferocious Bernie Sanders wing, Sanders Warren wing versus the the moderates? Yeah. This was like an intense battle. And, yeah, you know, progressives hated Biden. I mean, <laughs> like you, some you know prominent progressive authors wrote stuff about Biden that he you know he was some of the stuff that Republicans say about him now. Right, it was vicious. And then it just all sort of evaporated. And it seems like what you're saying is this was really easy. Oh, Whoever won, yeah. it was going to be really easy to unite the party. Well, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, that's right. But man, it certainly didn't look that way, feel that way, or seem that way when it was happening. This part of the book took the longest to write. Doing the Democratic primary. Yes. Huh. Because of just what you described, like, how did we get to March of 2020 and basically Biden's the only candidate left in the race and he's the nominee, given where things started in 2019? We had to understand that and, you know, tell that story. And that that took a very, very long time um, because it wasn't obvious to us. So one of the tables in, in this chapter in the book sort of looks at Democratic primary voters and says, who are they? And and just sort of gives the demographics. And just to sort of suggest that like, there may be a lot of energy behind a progressive wing, for example, and they may be um, very compelling and very interesting and have ideas that people like to think about and maybe pushing on ideas. But the bulk of the Democratic Party is not ideologically matched to them or demographically sort of similar. And when you say them, who would you associate with that way? I mean, is this Warren Sanders? I mean, how do you describe it? Yeah, I, you know, among our respondents in Nationscape, they actually placed Elizabeth Warren as the most liberal Democratic candidate and then followed by Sanders. Got it. And then, uh, you know, Buttigieg, Biden, Klobuchar are not on the same side of the ideological divide as Warren and Sanders. So you still, even now, because this is the way 
Democratic presidential primaries have been fought for quite a while now, right, is um, it always comes down to a sort of moderate progressive fight. But it does seem like the progressive side of things is, is getting bigger every four years to the point where, you know, uh, a Warren could win. But what you're saying is it's still not there. It, that, that, that divide, the balance of power is still in the center in a Democratic primary. Nationwide. Yeah. I mean, that that's what the data show. And, you know, the coalition of Democratic voters that gave Hillary Clinton the nomination in 2016, that coalition looks very similar for Joe Biden. And so, you know, you can kind of think about it that way. What pieces of the puzzle do you need to assemble to get a majority within the party? And then ask yourself, a progressive candidate what pieces, how are they going to get a majority of pieces? Um, and you can start to see how it, it might get challenging. Wait, so just unpack that a little bit more. What's the path for the, say Joe Biden doesn't decides yeah. not to run, just big picture, what's the path for the progressive versus the, the moderates in the next open Democratic yeah. primary? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. Well, and what, I and yeah. I think I want to, the, the answer I want to give you, I think is not what you're expecting. But this was a critical part of Joe Biden's success. So if Elizabeth Warren called right now and said, hey, you know, how do I get this nomination in 2024? The answer I would give her is you have to emerge very early on as the candidate that Democratic voters see as the best, the most able to beat the Republican candidate. Oh, I see. Wow. So it's really, it's it's electability. It's it's important. I mean, that is where we landed in the bitter end after a very, very long time working on this Democratic primary chapter, that people had high expectations for Biden. They thought he could beat Trump, you know. Yeah. Then he has basically these two primary performances that make everyone go, oh, whoa, yeah. okay, wait, you know. And in some ways- You're not electable if you're not winning. Those, yes. It's a real look in the mirror, right? Like, you know, but here's what was hard for us to appreciate that after staring at the data for months on end, we finally went like, gosh, we're just being idiots about this. Those are the anomalies. Those primaries are the anomalies. Like, but it is exactly what you- Iowa New Hampshire are the anomalies. If you think about it that way, like that's weird to say because like the test is winning. Right. right. So like for, for months and months and months, we think Joe Biden is going to win against Donald Trump. Right. Then he demonstrates he is not a winner. Yeah. And then he demonstrates again, he is not a winner. And so, yes, of course, people are like, oh, gosh, he's not a winner. Right. Because it's yeah. proof by demonstration. But it's slightly more complicated than that, because at that moment, Sanders and Buttigieg, OK, are they are they the win? They're winning are they the winner in November, right? So people are trying to sort that out. And we go down to South Carolina, you know, Biden is already picking up traction before South Carolina and before the endorsements down there. And then he wins there demonstrating he is a winner. And then it all unravels very quickly and COVID is coming and, you know, and he and he's the nominee. But what really helped, it sounds like what you're saying, is he went into the race with that reputation and expectation. Yes. So the early stumbles I think were that's seen right. as early stumbles. I think that's right. And yes. Sort of, if a progressive wants that same path, they need that sort of like floor of 
voters see that I can beat the guy yes. in the general election. Yeah. So if I stumble, I've got that sort of reserve of electable candidates. Yes. So it's much harder to overcome if you don't have that going in and you, you know, you're the inevitable front runner and you, you lose the first two races. And, and if I can just say one more thing about this. Yeah. So this is the fourth element of calcification that we are basically in balance in the in the electorate nationwide between people who call themselves Republicans and people who call themselves Democrats. This is a sort of, I feel like a very underappreciated, powerful force in American politics that we don't really write about much. It's huge. We write about polarization a lot. Yes. We write about a lot of the other things that we're talking about here. But just this fact that like the two parties are even, which I think Francis Lee's written a lot about this in terms of why congressional debates are yes. so, uh, so ugly, right? Yes, yes. Um, anyway, so this is deeply unappreciated. So explain to our listeners why why that's important. Right. So the idea here is that victory is always within reach for both sides if we're in balance. And you can see that in 2020, 44,000 votes in three states, and we'd have a different outcome. In 2016, 77,000 votes in three states, and we'd had a different outcome. So these presidential elections are turning on tens of thousands of votes in one state. That's what we're talking about here, being in balance in the electorate. And the implications of that that are so important are that if you lose, if your side loses, in the past, in 2012, when Mitt Romney lost the election, what did the party do? They went back and they had what they called an autopsy project, yeah. and they wrote a 100-page growth and opportunity project report. That is what they called it, growth and opportunity for the party. And it included things that this is what the party needs to do to attract more voters. And the idea there is they went back and they said, voters don't like what we're selling, so we need to change what we're selling. And that was driven just to pause by three presidential elections out of the last four where the Republican Party did not win a majority of the votes. Um, well, that was right? 2012. Well, well, so 2000. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yes. 2012. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So even though they had the White House in 2000. And 2004, 2004, yeah. But three out of those last four. So yeah. there was a real sense of like. Yeah, we need to, something's got to give, right? Yeah. But if you're only losing by 44,000 votes, there's no incentive to go back and say, hey, people don't like what we're selling. People do like what you're selling. They almost bought it, right? And instead, what do you do? You go back and you say, maybe, oh, we don't want to change the way we're playing the game. We want to change the rules of the game so that our strategy wins. So that uh, what we're, you know, change the rules a little bit so that we get those extra 44,000 votes. And that's what you've seen Trump doing. Change the rules of elections, change the rules of when polling places are open, who's eligible to vote, what you have to show to be able to cast a ballot, all those kinds of things that people are now worried are eroding the health of democracy. And that's what we mean in the bitter end when we say it's the challenge to American democracy. This is the challenge, is to not let these parties, when they almost win, not let them try to change the rules of the game to win. That's dangerous. This is really important. I want to dwell a little bit on this and unpack it a little bit. So just to make sure I understand what you're saying is, because of partisan parity, the incentive after a loss 
is no longer like 2012 and figure out what policies we can offer the American public to win next time. It's how can we tweak the rules a little bit to get that extra 10,000 votes in Michigan or whatever it is. Is there another era historically where the losing party moves to process changes and Hmm. even anti-democratic reforms rather than ideological reinvention? I'm just trying to think like historically, Yeah, does parity always produce that? Does it produce it in other countries at the state level? Um, like how powerful a force is that? Or is it something that's unique to the current era? I really wish I knew the answer to all those questions you just asked me. That that really would make my story so much more powerful. Um, because it's such a because you're this is a very simple concept. The, par- the parties are equal. Yeah, that is driving a really like frightening incentive. Yes, when we write about it in the book, we are writing about it as an observation, not really as a historical pattern that we now are worried is about to repeat itself. Yeah. Um, so we're just we are looking out and saying, you know, there's balance. These elections are very close. They're so calcification. You know, the stickiness doesn't mean the same party is always going to win. Right. It means that election outcomes are going to flip. D R D R, and that the thing driving those flips could be literally anything because they're turning on so few votes. Right. And so. We're just looking out and saying what's happening after, for example, 2020. And we thought about it like a football game. You were 10 yards short right. of the final drive. Okay. Instead of trying to go, you know, get a quarterback who can throw a little bit farther, let's propose five downs instead right. of four. Let's right. shorten the field by 10 yards, right? Let's right. change the apparatus so that what we've got going is a winner next time. Yeah. And we're just sort of looking at the observation of that, not that it's a historical pattern that we're worried is happening again. Got it. Okay. But to bring this back to Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren or someone like her, yeah. um, who wants them to maybe be the nominee in the next cycle. And I said the advice would be demonstrate that you can beat the Republican candidate in the general election. Why is that so important? Because... These elections are turning on very few votes, and you can't cede any of the middle ground to your opponent. You need to get every vote between where you are and where your opponent is. You, you can't give up any of that because it could be 10,000 votes in Georgia right. or, you know, so voters get that and they don't want to take the risk of giving up even a small number of voters in a state. So demonstrating that electability against the other party's opponent, I think, would be the number one thing I would. Demonstrating that electability. Okay. During the primary, you have to do that. Yes. In the year before the primary, um, what is technically called the invisible primary, that time when the candidates are raising money and demonstrating that they're serious and they can get supporters, you know, and you don't even know who the other person is going to be at that moment. In your primary or in the general election? In the general right, election, right. in the other party's if primary. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, if you're lucky, there's an incumbent president. Right. And, and so you know that person's likely to be the nominee. But you might not be. It might be an open primary in the other party, and you have to guess. But it does matter who you're running against. So this idea that like a year and a half out, you have to demonstrate that you can beat an opponent who you can't even identify yet, 
you know, this is not easy. Just, just to simplify, is that sort of um, the, the importance of electability, which I think is what we're describing here, is that something that is new and more important in primary politics than it was in, in previous eras? Well, um, yes and I know no. St- like strategists would kind of snicker at electability. Yeah. Know, like in the early elections I covered, like 2000 and 2004, there was this idea of, oh, you don't run on electability. That's not what moves voters. Yes. Um, it I seems think like it moves voters. Well, I think there's a difference between saying you're going to run on it and demonstrating that you are that person. Got it. Um, I think those are different things. Yeah. You uh, don't say, yes. my platform is I'm electable. Exactly. <laughs> and if you went out and just said that, yeah. you know, voters make all kinds of complicated assessments about candidates. You know, are they serious? Are they working hard? Are their policy preferences aligned with mine? Right. You know, all these kinds of things. And just going out and saying, like, vote for me because I'm the guy who can beat the other guy. Without saying anything more than that, you have to have a reason for your candidacy. It has to, you know, you have to put a world on offer to voters. And so I don't think it's wrong to say that you wouldn't go out and campaign on that. But you definitely want to be viewed that way. Did your research about this issue in the primaries shed any light about voters' perceptions of candidates who are not the traditional white male nominee. Yeah. Was there anything about sexism and racism in the minds of voters when they're thinking of who's the most electable? Yeah. You know, and it can go different ways. There's lots of like folk wisdom among strategists and pundits about moderate to conservative black voters in in South Carolina who thought, well, the public is not going is not ready for for a female and not ready for another black candidate against Trump. So we just got to go with the white guy. We got to go with the old white guy, right? And there was this sort of cultural conservatism about right. Biden that seemed to match up well against Trump, or at least that arguably was the strategic decision that some Democratic voters made. We put in in that conjoint experiment that I yeah. described earlier. We put some things that were not policy positions. So which what kind of world do you want to live in? Yeah. And one of the things was a woman is president. A gay man is president. Yeah. You know, a black man is president. A black woman is president. So we had whole different combinations of those things. There was only one instance where the characteristic affected whether or not people chose that basket of goods. And that was just a, a small bit of anti-LGBTQ expression for Buttigieg, yeah. In, and that's among um, Democratic voters. I cannot remember specifically whether that was among Democrats or all voters. And you would reveal that the same way we're talking before, yes. giving the yeah. basket of choices. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't a very big effect, and it was the only candidate characteristic that that really emerged as being more important than the policy stuff. Interesting. Then race, um, race and gender didn't have the, you didn't find that. And do you feel like the way that you explored that issue, that you were leaving out the ability of, of respondents to sort of game that because they don't want to seem homophobic or racist or sexist? That is the hope, that yeah. the method is, you know, not really transparent to them. And they, yeah. are, they are looking at, you know, collections of things where – 
it might have their preferred position on impeaching Trump and it might have their preferred position on, you know, the Green New Deal or other things. But it also says a gay man is president and they really have to. Nope, I'm going to choose the other the other basket. And so So, don't know is how much of that is like just homophobia and how much of it is. Well, other people are homophobic. Yeah, so exactly. Can- that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, that's a very good point. You, this cannot tell us why people right. think that that would not be a good outcome. Only that it was among those characteristics. It was the one outcome that was different from the others. All right. One, th- one thing I want to go back to a little bit. Is this all Trump's fault? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Is it all his doing? Right. He's been the dominant character the dominant force the thing we're all trying to like understand how he's changed politics so how much is what you're describing in in this in this era about him how much has he accelerated the surge in identity politics in the democratic party did he you know did he supercharge that and how much of this was just happening uh, anyway yeah and i know that's not an easy it is a, answer it is a great question And the answer is a little bit of both. So the one thing that's really important, I think, for people to remember is that when Donald Trump came down the escalator in 2015 and said all those things that he said and and then continued throughout his campaign to talk about identity issues, he's not creating attitudes in the electorate. Hmm. Those attitudes existed. Racial attitudes liberal and conservative attitudes existed in the Democratic and Republican Party. Donald Trump's not making those attitudes. But what had been happening for a long time, basically since um, the mid to late 80s, is that neither party was explicitly leaning into those attitudes, uh, drawing on those attitudes in presidential elections. My co-author Michael Tesler will at this point want me to say that there were implicit appeals to racial attitudes. Absolutely. But that was the norm, is that if you wanted to try to activate people's racial attitudes, make them important to their vote choice, you did it implicitly. Because everybody understood that expressing racist views was socially unacceptable. And so certainly candidates weren't going to do it. So it would backfire. It would cost um, you more votes. That was gain. that was the thought. Right. Okay. That was the consensus we were living under until 2015. Yes. Right. And then Trump. And I mean, Ex- I don't want to say there were no examples of explicit appeals, right. but they certainly they, local level. Yes. Right. But it was it, we moved into a more of a dog whistle. Yes. Version of of racial of racial politics. And that was the equilibrium. Yeah. This famous Lee Atwater quote about this. Exactly. And then Trump comes down the escalator and says, you know, Mexico's not sending its best. Explicit appeal to racial attitudes. Yeah. And not only does he not pay a cost, he's getting thirty percent of the vote. And then he goes out and says it again and again and he's still getting 30% of the vote. He's not losing voters. He's sort of demonstrating that this equilibrium that had existed since the 80s about, you know, we're not going to make explicit racial appeals because it'll cost us voters. He's demonstrating that wasn't true. So he's not creating these attitudes. You can think of them as sort of being embers that were just a part of public opinion. Yeah. 
But what he is doing is throwing gasoline on the embers. We call it activation. He's lighting them up. And that's when they start climbing the ladder on that revealed importance scale. They go from being wherever they were, um, but they go to the top. Then Hillary Clinton, she says, you know, wow, this is crazy. I, I am going to say that my positions are different from this. And so she starts, you know, because I assume they think that that's a winning strategy. It's going to attract that middle you know, that everybody needs. Yeah. So then she starts talking about those issues. And so all of a sudden we've got a fight in 2016 that is about identity inflected issues. And that's what we're fighting over. And then Trump wins and he goes and governs just like he campaigned. And 2020 comes around. And for a brief moment, I thought he was going to run in the economy because he went down to Florida when he kicked off his campaign pre-COVID. And he said, you don't like me very much, but you're going to vote for me because I brought you a booming economy. And I thought to myself, oh, OK, interesting. Like he's he's going to run on the economy. And boy, that is unexpected. You know, it's going to require discipline. And and then COVID hit and the economy tanked and he couldn't do that. And he went right back to his old familiar songbook, mm-hmm. right back to those identity inflected issues. This is a very long answer to your question of how much of this is Trump-centered. You can't make something out of nothing. So he took those embers and he poured gasoline on them. That part is all him. Jeb Bush wasn't doing that. You know, John Kasich wasn't doing that. So the other 16 people who ran in the 2016 Republican primary were not going to do that. So, yes, he is critical to understanding the moment that we're in right now. But he didn't invent it out of whole cloth. The attitudes were there in the population, and everybody knew it. But the question is, and this is why you can think about this year after year, okay, so what if Trump hadn't run? Would another candidate have come along and recognized the opportunity and tried the same thing? It's hard to say. Those votes are there for Republicans in that primary. And so candidates want to win elections. Yeah. And I mean, we've had a Pat Buchanan-like figures in Republican primaries before. Yes. So it's not impossible to believe that a version of of Trump that was unrestrained by the, the sort of norm of not being explicitly racist would have come along. Um, Are there things that a Democratic candidate, that a Hillary Clinton or a Joe Biden, are are there issues where there was a group of voters available to them if they had touched some third rail in the way that Trump has done with race and immigration? Are there other obvious things that are sort of just below the surface that are sort of repressed as issues Mm. because... You know, for the same reason that candidates weren't explicitly racist, but Trump just decided he would go there. Well, I mean, I don't I, think he had any data to like really support that he, it would work. Yeah. Well, just but, those comments in the in the comment section of Breitbart, like for him, that's good data. Exactly. Right? He's a exactly. he's a sales guy. He's right. reading the room. So he knows that if he says this, there will be a lot of people who cheer him. Right. Um, it's not traditional polling data, but it is, you know. He isn't, you know, swinging at pitches blindfolded. Yeah. Um, but if we, is there anything, and I, you know, if you don't have an, an answer, for this, yeah. it's fine. It's not an easy thing to answer, but I'm just wondering, are there other obvious things like that that I, we should think of as like, this is the next place a 
politician who doesn't care about norms norms yeah um, may go and you know and, and and a democratic politician if you're someone on the left who's thinking about this i mean the way to systematically think about this is what policy exists right now where the majority of democrats and republicans may have the same position on it basically that's what racism was um <laughs> Well, yeah, we're both like, against it and against using yes, it as an exactly. issue. Yes, that and is exactly what I mean. And said, "I'm no longer going to uh, yes. abide by that prohibition." Yeah, like it works for both of us not to talk about this. Got it. Right. 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 So, I mean, in 2012, Romney and Obama they basically did not talk about immigration. Like Romney said, self deportation, and then didn't really talk about it again. Yeah. You know, Obama wasn't out there holding him. Let's talk about this. Let's it, it's yeah. you know, it's sort of like there are issues that don't percolate to the top because neither party right. wants them to percolate to the top. Right. And so So that would be the what we how would we we would think about this? That it's could like, be one way to yeah. think about it. And so a lot of the the gender identity issues that become public policy and public space issues, like bathrooms, right. high school locker rooms sports teams participating you know you could imagine a time when a candidate is really going to want to drive that to the top of the agenda there are public policy issues out there being debated about these things but it isn't something that our presidential candidates are talking about so it's a i think it's a very hard question to answer because there isn't anything uniquely like racial attitudes you know that is just it's just historically, there's nothing it's else different. like it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about campaign effects. We, t- we talked a little bit about how surprising it was that world historic events, they didn't change your data much. They didn't cha- right. change, your, change your panels. Is there anything from 2020 that did, um, whether it's a massive advertising buy or a gaffe or a speech is there anything that broke through in the data that was surprising sadly no um and it is it is amazing and it is it is really a testament to this idea of being stuck that the the parties are far apart people are more alike they know what kind of world they want to live in and they know the other side isn't offering that world like what what we've really been saying is The effects of advertisements, for example, in presidential campaigns are small and they go away really fast. Now, small doesn't mean irrelevant, especially in elections that are incredibly close. Small can be pivotal, but they're not 10 points, right? Right. They're less than a point. And in down ballot races, the effects are going to be bigger. But we're sort of- That's where parity comes in, again, becomes so important. Yes, yes. When something matters just a tiny bit, it can be- It can be pivotal. the White House for four years. Exactly. That's exactly, yes, you get an A plus, yes. Um, That's exactly right. And so in 2020, we actually did not find at the presidential level effects on advertising. Now it's worth pointing out how weird the 2020 campaign was. And I think it's easy to forget how tragic the beginning of 2020 was with the initial COVID lockdowns. But this idea that by August of 2020, you still had Joe Biden not wanting to go do campaign rallies and drive-in rallies and the conventions got canceled and moved 
and there was imbalance in the advertising. So Biden was massively out advertising Trump in 2020. But still, that calcification, people being, they know where they are, and they're there, and they're not being persuaded by things. That was so powerful that those campaign effects, even when there were times of massive imbalance, um, we could not detect them in our data. Now, one of the things that you and your political science colleagues have taught political reporters is that campaign effects are also are often much, much less influential than we like to think. And that in a presidential election or a midterm, what really matters are these big structural issues. Yes. Most importantly, the economy. Yes. A lot of what you're describing in this book suggests that calcification, increased polarization, is now even overcoming the, the traditional broad, broad structural measures like how good the economy is. How much has that changed? How important are the traditional structural measures that seem to have a big, big role in which party wins an election? It is a great question. And I think that if you picked 10 political scientists <laughs> at random, you would get different answers from everyone. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My answer is that I have always thought about those fundamentals, state of the economy, the approval rating of the current president, yeah. the balance of partisanship, people's party identification has always been the best predictor of how they're going to vote in elections. Like no one ever thought that the economy was going to override your party, right? We've always been talking about at the margin. So it's like, we're going to watch the play. That's the campaign. Yeah. But the, the play that we're going to see depends a lot on the stage dressing and the state of the economy, the president's approval rating, partisanship, that's all set the, setting the stage. What the candidates do with that, that's important. And for me, I've always thought, why do incumbents in growing economies win elections? Um, we don't have very many observations in the post-New Deal era on, on presidents. But I still think that, for example, an incumbent in a growing economy who doesn't go out there and talk about it is I think is a lot less likely to win that election because now in this state of calcification, it's 10,000 votes in Georgia, it's 44,000 votes across three states, and you need all of those votes. Um, so you want to be giving every person every chance to vote for you. So not talking about your growing economy, that's a mistake. There are incumbents in growing economies who do not win. This economy is good. This guy's in office. I'm going to give him another term in office. That's not, you think the, it's a little more complicated than that. I do think it, it's a little it, more complicated than that. matters. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And of course, it also matters what the other person does. We tend to simplify these things down to the Trump campaign, the Biden campaign. And really the way to think about it is they are in a tug of war. It's a joint effort. So you have to think about them relative to one another. So sometimes those incumbents and in growing economies might be losing because the person they're running against is doing a great job resetting the election off of the economy and onto something else. But I don't think calcification means that the state of the economy, how well people think the president's doing, that those things are now irrelevant and we're in a completely different 
universe, throughout everything you think you know. I think calcification is an important way to think about our current state of politics, but I don't think it means that none of the fundamentals matter anymore. Got it. You know, the takeaway from all of this is elections are going to be very close. Victory is always within reach for both parties. And the stakes of the outcomes feel very high to people. Why? Because the other side is farther away than ever. And you and everybody like you, you're all you're all more like one another now, really want your side to win. And your victory is right there for you. And it's super high stakes because the other side is so far away. That's the tenor of every presidential election that's coming. What would break us out of calcification? And is there any way to predict, given demographic trends or anything else, how long we'll be in this era? This is another question that I think about all the time. And, you know, if you think political scientists are downers uh, (laughs) because, you know, we say like, you know, there are no game changers. This is really going to depress you. Um, I I can't. Because you said this is the new normal. I I can't think of anything. Yes. I think this is the new normal. If COVID didn't do it, if the murder of George Floyd didn't do it, if the Capitol insurrection didn't do it, those are three epic, historic, national moments. And they happened very quickly, all in a short time period. And they were all subsumed by the current dimension of conflict. COVID didn't start that way. Everybody was washing their hands more. Everybody was canceling travel. Everybody was staying home. And then Trump went out and said, liberate Michigan. And it got politicized instantly when he said, my party's position is going to be something else. Instantly politicized, a global pandemic. And then you just, you know, still vast majorities of Republicans took COVID mitigation strategies, but it wasn't the same across party anymore. If those things can't reset the dimension of conflict, it becomes very hard for me to sort of think about what will. The Russia-Ukraine war, maybe you could imagine a reshifting back to a focus on America's role in the world. But I think that this is the state of politics. Sometimes I think possibly for the rest of my lifetime. Sometimes I think maybe just at least a decade or two. I don't know. But it's hard to think of something that resets it. It is not going to be as simple as, oh, you know, we just need a candidate to come out and talk about different things. We are way past that. That's not going to be enough. Lynn, thank you very much for doing this. This is a great conversation. Thanks for coming out and doing it. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Adam Allington is senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of Audio at Politico. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of Audio at Politico. Mike DeBonis is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.